now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. So I'm full-on conspiracy mode at this point. I am... 100% convinced that this entire thing was orchestrated by the Chinese to dismantle the XFL for the second time. (laughs) It seems like a plausible thing. I mean, how else are you going to... Nobody wants to actually watch that, right? (laughs) That and Frisbee golf. (laughs) Frisbee golf. (laughs) Oh, my God. Hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. If you're watching the uh, the Facebook thing right now, you can see our faces, which is it's it's fun. We've never done that before. I just pulled um, it up, Nick. It looks really good. Nice it job. It looks your, really good. I know your tech skills are, are first rate. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, before we get started, all the uh, oh no, I didn't even do the introductions. Uh, I am uh, your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College in the bottom left square. Uh, and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College in the bottom right square. And then we have a uh, senior legal analyst, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, in the top right square. <laughs> <laughs> Until I get some assurances that Nick has had antibody testing, I'm wearing my mask. <laughs> or at least until I need my first drink of beer. <laughs> so like two seconds? <laughs> um Anyways, before we get started, uh, we'll go through all the usual fun stuff. If you guys have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, which you'll see our live shows. Uh, you can watch right now. Uh, ask us questions during the show. We'll, we'll try and respond when we can. Uh, the podcast itself you can find on SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, uh, Apple Podcasts. Um, did I say Spotify already? I'm at way out of order on this. Um, I don't know, some kind of podcasting platform. Just search for something on there. You'll, you'll find it. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, just search for Barstool Politics on there. And then our merch line, you can find on uh, teespring.com. You'll find direct links on all of our social channels. Um, so definitely check that out. Uh, t-shirts, uh, hoodies, mugs, things like that with logo and our logo and funny sayings on it. Um, and we'll be adding new stuff in the future. So definitely uh, be on the lookout for that. Um, we, uh, I kind of teased it through, uh, through Facebook, but we have Tom here. So we definitely want to look at, uh, uh, everything that's been going on with COVID over the past few weeks from a, uh, a legal and constitutional lens. Um, lots of interesting things, uh, presidential power, uh, governmental overreach, um, really interesting and, uh, um, uh, 
less than optimistic things in my opinion but anyways bill can you give us a rundown of what the hell is going on right now of course so president trump president trump's coronavirus briefing on monday was one for the history books uh we will get to the north korean style propaganda video video he opened the briefing with later in speed round but we thought it'd be useful to start with the important constitutional questions that have been raised by this global pandemic when president trump was asked during the briefing what authority he has to reopen the country he forcefully proclaimed that quote i have the ultimate authority he went on to clarify noting quote when somebody is the president of the united states the authority is total and that's the way it's got to be it's total <laughs> my favorite part was when a reporter asked what specific provisions of the constitution gave him the power to override the states Trump offered the definitive answer of numerous provisions. Uh, this is an extraordinary exertion of federal power over the states. Yet there are other really fascinating constitutional questions to be addressed. For instance, is it legal for Michigan's governor to declare all gatherings, public or private, of any number of people illegal? What about the state quarantines in Florida and Texas for travelers arriving from New York? Or Rhode Island's trooper pulling over, troopers pulling over cars with the New York license plates? Where do the governors and mayors who are still issuing shelter-in-place orders get the power to do so? Can they really close churches and other peaceful public assemblies? At the federal level, does President Trump really have the power to order a nationwide shutdown or reopening? Can he force GM to make ventilators or force 3M to make and not export masks? Put simply, how does a government balance the serious public health needs of a pandemic with our most basic constitutional rights to travel, earn a living, and make individual choices about how to best keep ourselves and loved ones Excuse me, safe? Tom, why don't you start us off by answering this question? True or false, there are numerous uh, uh, provisions in the Constitution giving the president total and ultimate authority during a pandemic. Well, it pleases a libertarian to say, as I'm sure you can imagine, that no one has total and absolute authority at the state, federal, county, city, uh, or any other uh, level of government. So um, we can start by saying that. Uh, this, from my perspective, has turned out to be about as interesting uh, a way of looking at sort of the beauties of federalism uh, that in my lifetime we've really ever had. Um, all sorts of interesting ways of looking at how we've dispersed power across American governmental units, ways of thinking about uh, the federal uh, government being one of enumerated powers that are very limited, one of thinking about the interesting ways that um, state governments have completely different ways of uh, uh, managing within their, their borders. So I I want to come to some of those really interesting questions, including uh, the Michigan one. But why don't we start by saying just a, a couple of things um, to, to sort of lay the groundwork. Uh, the first is one that we've said before, but it bears saying again, state and local authorities in circumstances like this have vastly greater authority relative to their citizens than federal government, uh, any federal government entity. But here, I think we're talking particularly about the president. These are called police powers. They're very broad, but they have to be applied equally, uh, evenly, and kind of non-arbitrarily. So what I don't want to suggest is that state governors can do anything they like any more than the president can. But I think they do have power to do things that the president cannot, both in terms of shutting down and in terms of reopening, which has become sort of an issue uh, in the last couple of days. Um, the second thing that needs to be said about these governor powers is they have to be exercised in ways that are um, 
proportional or congruent with the risk. So I want to talk about a case in a little couple minutes here involving the plague in San Francisco and a state effort to quarantine people there that turned out to uh, fail judicial scrutiny because it was not congruent, it was not proportional, and it was not applied evenly. Last thing to say here, just in terms of sort of state power before we move on, uh, is these are things, uh, that is to say, these uh, quarantine uh, sorts of uh, efforts, these have uh, taken place in the United States since long before the Constitution. Uh, so this is not new for states or local governments to close their borders or to exercise some caution about who crosses them. In fact, uh, there's an interesting story of Alexander Hamilton being quarantined during the days of yellow fever when he tried to cross uh, a state border. Now, he got to live in his wife's mansion uh, for the period of time that he was quarantined, but uh, even Hamilton accepted uh, well, Hamilton's a big government guy, so I guess I'm not surprised that he did. But Hamilton accepted the idea that he had to quarantine and that state government had a right to make him do so. On the flip side, let's just say this about the federal uh, government and the president. The power the president has is largely under the Interstate Commerce Clause and some emergency uh, powers. And I think, Bill, you want to talk about that latter thing in, in a moment. Um, I, I anticipate I'm thinking they're a little narrower than, than you do. So this is going to be an interesting conversation. Under the Interstate Commerce Clause, the president has the right uh, to manage the things that move from state to state, to put that in a different context. So while the president can't open and reopen states individually, he can probably do a lot of things that matter. Uh, theoretically, he can regulate ports. He can regulate the airports, uh, ports for boats and ports for planes. Uh, arguably, he could regulate the interstate highway system, which is owned by the federal government. Second, he's got the power of the purse. And, and I do hope we come back to this one because there were some interesting Affordable Care Act uh, rulings relative to the degree to which presidents can leverage money to force states to do things they want them to. Um, the president doesn't have any inherent police powers. And unless Congress grants those to him, and maybe even if they tried to do that, they couldn't, but unless they do, he doesn't. Um, I'm reminded here of Truman's efforts uh, in, I want to say it was 1952 or 51 or something like that, essentially to steal the means of, uh, and maybe steals too pejorative a word, control, uh, the means of steel production. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, roundly denied him the right to do that on the grounds that that was not something that was within the executive's power. So the president's powers are fairly limited. State governor powers are much broader. And now we have this range of ways that governors uh, are endeavoring to apply that power, some of which seem to be entirely sensible, some of which seem to be uh, ludicrous on their face. Um, Michigan's governor's gotten a lot of attention, and not just because she, uh, uh, well, she's the she, I think, that uh, President Trump sort of ridiculed at one point. Um, I, I, let's start by saying, I think everybody here is trying to operate in good faith. And I say that even as a libertarian who's nervous about government power. But there are an awful lot of ways in which her assertions of the things she uh, believes she has the uh, authority to do seem to me to go well beyond uh, proportion to the risk. So you can't buy seeds in Mich Michigan, you can't buy paint, but you can buy candy and you can buy lottery tickets. Landscaping businesses can't operate. If you're in a boat without a motor, you can go out. If you're in a boat with a motor, you can't. 
Um, and you can't buy non-essential groceries. So it turns out if you go into a grocery store, there's going to be lanes that have things in them that the governor has decided you don't need and things in them, uh, other lanes that is the governor has decided that you do. Uh, my sense is that starts to tease the boundaries of things that the governor has exceeded her authority. And this is happening in other states too. Vermont uh, has non-essential groceries listed in, and, and that sort of thing. So uh, limited government at, at the federal level, somewhat much, uh, maybe much broader at the, the state level. Um, why don't we start there? What, what are you all thinking is interesting about or controversial in that disposition of powers? So well, I, I, go well, ahead. Go ahead yeah. I, the thing that I found interesting in all, I mean, we can come back to the, I, to, to me, it seems like there's two different conversations to be had. One about what powers exist, what powers do different people have, and then there's another question about what powers should they have. Right. Um, and so, I, the on the on the topic of what powers do they have, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. One of the things that I found interesting, and Bill mentioned this in the in the intro topic, is the tension between states. So, you know, there's there's all sorts of questions about how much power does a governor have within a state, but what sort of limits exist in terms of, I mean, as part of a, you know, a national government, one of the principles is freedom of movement of peoples, right? Mm -hmm. we, we don't have limits between states. And so the, the, I don't, I'm not super familiar with the Hamilton example that you, you brought up that there's a difference between saying someone who is exposed has to quarantine. And there's an, there, there's a difference between that and saying, we're not letting anybody from New York enter our state. And so Absolutely. are there legal limits on that? And, and what are those? Where would those come from? Well, the, the easy answer, and it's going to be a frustrating for one uh, for people, is we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I, we have not had a quarantine where we said something as broad as we are outright closing the border to all non, let's say, Rhode Island, because that's one of the states that was checking IDs at the border. You don't get in at all if you're from Rhode Island. I think that would, uh, in many ways, violate the federal constitutional guarantee of interstate um, not commerce necessarily, but transport or travel. Um, so we have this careful balance between federal and state power. And while we enumerate the powers to the federal government, we also protect ourselves in ways that keep any government from doing to us the things that we think are anathema. And I think one of those would be an absolute bar on moving across state borders. So maybe one easy way to answer it is to say, uh, governors have rights relative to their own citizens and within their own borders, and can regulate to some degree those coming into those borders from other states. So Michigan has the unusual rule of, if you live within Michigan, you cannot travel between two properties that you own. However, because the governor understands, I think, that she can't close the border to non-Michigan citizens, somebody who is not a Michigander can travel to a second home there if they're a citizen of another state. And while I'm guessing lots of people are pulling their hair out when they hear that and saying, how in the world does that make sense? It's a really great way of illustrating what she can do and what she can't do. She can regulate her own citizens within their borders and the property they own, but she's got far more limited powers relative to people coming from other states. What are the, what are, sorry, you can finish your thought. I didn't. I... Can she stop people at the border? And uh, let's say record their driver's license to see whether they have come in and out of the state. I think she can. Can she have police give them a warning on the way in? You're coming from a high risk area. We expect that you're going to self quarantine. I think she can. 
Could she stop them at the border and not let them in if they're from New York? I don't think she could do that. But again, I guess I end with, we haven't tested these things at at the judicial level yet. So it's hard to say. Do you think that's going to happen? Will there be court cases? And I I think about indirect ways. So like New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. for instance, has essentially required all Airbnbs and hotels to shut down. Essentially, I think to prevent people from, you know, coming to New Hampshire to get away for the weekend or whatever, which is an indirect way of getting at that. Do you, as this happens so quickly, are, will we see uh, court cases or will this sort of move quickly enough that the, that the courts don't have time yeah. to respond? We've already seen a couple of uh, uh, judicial responses and they involved uh, religious gatherings. Um, now, these were ones where the measures imposed by state governors were so draconian and so unrelated to any sort of safety uh, effort whatsoever that it was difficult for reasonable people to take them seriously. So one, for example, was in Mississippi where people attended a drive up uh, ceremony, parked their cars six feet, kept their windows closed and listened through their AM radios to their pastor who was inside the building. Police in Mississippi wrote individual tickets to everybody who was in a car uh, in that lot, not even per car. If it was two people in the car, there were two tickets at $500 each. Now, those kinds of things have found their way into court. And generally, the courts have said, if the response isn't proportional and congruent with the risk, then we're going to stop governors from doing that sort of thing. And and there have been a couple of examples of that sort of religious uh, infringement. I'd go on and say this. If others can gather in comparable ways, let's say you could pull 10 cars up in front of a movie theater, but then they're being enforced relative to a church, there's a second problematic uh, uh, sort of application of uh, a governor's order. So there's a bit, there's a bit of judicial action already. I, my, my own sense is that because the courts are going to be very deferential on public health uh, questions, you're going to have to demonstrate, maybe this is the time I'll mention the San Francisco case, you're going to have to mention or, or, or make an argument for something that truly exceeds any reasonable boundaries. So let me give you an example of a case like that. Long ago in San Francisco, there's the plague, uh, a small outbreak. Um, At the time, the mayor says, well, listen, what we're going to do is make sure anybody who lives in what was then called their Chinatown can't leave, though it turns out if you are non-Chinese and want to go into Chinatown, you could. Hmm. And there was no evidence whatsoever that the plague was located either exclusively there or even there at all. In other words, it was a pretext to discriminate against the people that lived there. And a federal trial judge struck it on the grounds that while there's enormous state power at you know the, the, the state level, the county level, or, or even the city level, it doesn't extend far enough to violating basic fundamental constitutional rights like equal protection or the right to religion. The right to assemble, I think, is a really interesting one. Uh, do you have a First Amendment right to assemble if you do so in a way consistent with social distancing? I guess I have to say, I think the answer to that question is probably yes. Um, though, uh, Phil, you point out, it's going to be very difficult to get to court fast enough, right. given how rapidly things are evolving to assert that right. Who knows? We could still be having these conversations six months from now, right? I mean, that's, I think that's, that's the, the big what if about all of this. And yeah. the other thing that I, I think you both hit on is that 
it's it feels like it's just uncharted territory in terms of legal questions where how much power does this do the states have versus does the president the federal level have i will say yesterday so when trump gave or two days ago when he gave his his press briefing and was talking about the fact that he has the ultimate authority my initial reaction was this is absurd of course not and you know the states i think to, to tom's point the states have tremendous power here to play devil's advocate a little bit, I've spent the day kind of reading some of the arguments for presidential authority, especially during times of emergency. And some of the really compelling arguments are that we haven't really like the outer boundaries of, of presidential power haven't have been poorly defined. So we don't know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And Tom, you're right. When you talk about Truman and the Steele case, you know, that was where they said they went too far. The Supreme Court says you go too far. Mm-hmm. But we also have FDR with the internment camps. Mm-hmm. You know, we have George W. Bush with the the warrantless wiretaps, you know, mm-hmm. going all the way back to Lincoln with you know, suspending habeas corpus. Habeas corpus. So during yeah. moments of, of crisis, the president has so much power. The other thing that was interesting to think about is that over time, Congress has given the president tremendous amount of executive uh, emergency powers like just right now there are 30 different emergency powers that are activated um trump has, has done four more recently so that i mean does it feel i i didn't think that there were 30 34 emergencies going on right now but you know those are things that all the president has to do is say i'm acting uh and, and inform congress so I, I worry a little bit about that balance i think there should be a good balance between the states and in a situation like this, deferring to the states. Mm-hmm. But I think if, if President Trump really pushed it, he might be able to make a compelling argument. Now, he didn't do that the other day at the press conference, but one could. <laughs> so. I, th- I, I don't want to undersell how important it would be to regulate interstate movement via ports, airports, and the highways. You could effectively shut down uh, entire states if you shut down the interstate highways that led to them and the airports that operated within them. Uh, so, so I think even the powers I've already talked about are not insignificant. And when you add to that the possibility that federal funds could be made available to states contingent on their um, obedience to uh, directives from the president, that's a pretty big deal. Um, having said that, add in the emergency powers, and I, and I think there are some, but let's remember the Supreme Court decided in Korematsu that those internment camps really did violate uh, mm-hmm. our constitution. And I suspect some of the things that perhaps uh, a, a president who says things like, I have absolute total power and that's how it needs to be, the kinds of things people who think that way do are exactly the kinds of thing the constitution protects us from. So does he have powers? I think he does. Are they meaningful? I think they are. Uh, Can he reopen the economy on his own? He cannot. I don't think the emergency powers of of any sort give him that right. And the last thing I'd say is Congress has to give him some authority. I, I mean, that is to say, the president can't just simply say, wow, there's an emergency relative to people and obesity. So I'm going to decide that you can't get sugar drinks or you can't smoke anymore or something like that. Simply declaring an emergency and then gathering to yourself king-like powers isn't something that we'd permit. And the judicial branch would be the last part of that equation. Let's just assume for the moment Congress gives the president powers. He advises them that he's going to use them in a particular way and it exceeds constitutional boundaries. Presumably the federal courts would step in to say, The Constitution trumps all of these things, Mm -hmm. irrespective of whether there's an emergency or not. You can't do that. Do you you think it would look different if it were flipped around? In in other words, if state 
governments were dragging their feet on Ooh. shutting things down and the president Ooh. were insisting on it. So there's a there's a weird dynamic in which Trump is saying start up again yeah. and the governors seem to have more power in dragging their feet on that. If it were flipped around, I wonder if the presidential powers would be more apparent. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. Uh, I, I said we might want to come back to the Affordable Care Act case. Remember that one of the uh, the issues that got to the federal courts was the business of whether or not the president, uh, then Obama, uh, could use Medicaid and Medicare funds to compel states uh, to essentially accept uh, the Affordable Care Act. It was a threat. You know, either you accept the Affordable Care Act or I'm not going to send Medicare and Medicaid money to you. And what the court said was uh, that is not an appropriate exercise of the power of the purse. In other words, you can't use federal funds as a way of coercing states to do a thing that they ought to have some sovereignty relative to. Now, there are cases that go the other direction uh, as well. Um, so I, I guess to answer your question more directly, uh, I think it would be fascinating if it was the states that had said, we're not going to do anything, and the president said that you were. Because what if he says, and he could absolutely appropriately have done it to New York, well, I'm going to close all of the airports in the state. Uh, you will no longer have the ability to have planes come and go. And by the way, I'm also going to close all your ports because I can keep ships out of those. And while I'm at it, I'm going to close all of the interstates, turnpikes, and everything else that's a federally funded road, and no one's going to drive on those into the state of New York. And finally, I'm going to withhold funds. You can sue me as if, you know, if you like, but by the time you get figured out, I'm going to have withheld funds long enough that it's going to have made a deep, deep dent in your budget. And your. Well, I think most people would knuckle under under those circumstances. Yeah, I, I, I think of uh, the highway, the interna interstate highways, and uh, when they changed uh, drinking, uh, the right. laws around drinking in, in that instance, right, where there are funds. I'm living near Louisiana, where Louisiana highways were terrible for years because they stuck to an 18-year-old drinking age. Yeah, yeah well, uh, my, my excellent friend Bill is from the state that held out. 49 states finally knuckled under, and number 50 was Wisconsin. And interestingly enough, though, Wisconsin held out until the threat of withholding road funds, federal road funds, right. was, was made. Now, I don't know whether or not if it had actually been the case that they said, well, we're sticking with 18, and we'll take yeah. our chances on the road funds, the courts would have agreed. But what finally got Bill and all of our wonderful Wisconsin friends to you know, sort of cave in was, man, if we lose all our road money, we are sunk. You know, what's interesting about that is we still, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, you still heard conversation about that. People talked about that. That was mm -hmm. an issue that was you know, kind of a state's right issue for Wisconsin. And eventually they said, you're right, we we can't push back, but or eventually we have to give up. I mean, I as you guys were talking, I was thinking about like uh, North North Dakota right now. Um, you know, they have been very lax in terms of lax. They're choosing to be less aggressive in terms of the uh, the the laws that they're putting out there, initiatives they're putting out there, and you're seeing cases spike. So it's it's entirely possible that if they were to continue to maintain that position, you might see the federal government saying like, you know, we want you to be more aggressive. And so I wonder whether, depending on what happens around the country, will uh, the Trump administration be more aggressive? I think they're reluctant to do so, um, but it could reach a point where they they have to. Um, yeah, you know, the interesting thing from my perspective was that for this entire uh, affair, the president has been reluctant to exercise power. And it's only when at this final, you know, I shouldn't say final, it's only when in the last couple of days somebody challenges him yeah. uh, that he talks about this total authority because the frustration people have had all the way along is, why isn't he doing more uh, rather than 
uh, sort of reserving to the states the right to do what they want. Set aside how insulting he can be about governors and that sort of thing. In some ways, if you take the rhetoric away, he's done exactly what the federal and state laws as a sort of balancing against one another expect him to do. This is, you know, we, we kicked this around last week. We were talking mm-hmm. about this. There have been some who've saying that, you know, this is the moment for the imperial presidency and Trump has not embraced that role. He's done it in other ways, but not here. And so it's way more rhetorical. Yeah. And I think I think that's probably what happened here. It sounds like his aides were surprised that he said this and uh, others didn't know that he was going to do this. So I, I think mm-hmm. there's there's not a fear that he really believes this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is kind of curious the way in which the rhetoric often matters more than the, the practice itself. Yeah, but go back to North Dakota, because in some ways, I think one of the things we're seeing here is is how wonderfully a federalist system works. That is, um, we're we're seeing states capable of making judgments about the particular populations that live in them, the risks they face, the benefits that they might gain from some of the uh, more draconian approaches, and an understanding that states have to contribute some things. That is to say, if the farm belt shuts down, then all those people in Manhattan don't have anything to eat for dinner. And it may very well be that the rules have to be different in different places. They are because we're a federalist system. But take a look around you at the rest of the world, which isn't, uh, and where there are strong federal governments that don't listen to the distinct different populations in different parts of their countries. A farmer in Nebraska is different relative to coronavirus than, let's say, an emergency room nurse in uh, New York. Federalism lets us acknowledge that in ways that I think are really worth um, emphasizing. Yeah, I, I think there's there's pros and cons. I think there's there's ways sure. in which the federalism has made things slower. But the you know the American politics argument is you know that the the fifty states are the laboratories of democracy, right? And, and right. one of the positive ways of seeing this is you have fifty different states who are trying fifty different things, and you mm-hmm. can kind of see what works and what doesn't. And what you see mm-hmm. is when it starts to work in one place, other states tend to fall in line behind that. Yeah, and you know it could have gone differently. It could have been that New York mm-hmm. locked down and it didn't make an impact, and so states that were more more lax seemed more positive, you know, seemed more effective and states drifted that way. And so, yeah, I see the the benefits in that. Mm-hmm. I, I even think about, you're right, absolutely, the, the laboratory of democracies within the United States, but also internationally, we're seeing some really, really diff- important differences between how states are approaching this. Uh, Sweden, which, you know, uh, this, this bed of social democracy and welfare <laughs> states has been very libertarian in terms of how they've approached it. They've said, we want to allow people to go out and still be, um, you know, go to restaurants and whatnot. We're just asking them to social distance. And initially it worked really well. They're seeing a spike in cases now. It does I mean, it will take time to assess which have been the better uh, strategies. But I, I mean, it, all of it's sort of a, a bad situation, but it's really fascinating to see how those differences work out. The only guy who thinks Swedes aren't libertarians is Bernie Sanders. <laughs> They've always been like this, rough <laughs> individualists. They might have a social safety net, but please, these are not socialists. They're so, Tom, I was thinking about uh, the question, you know, you're talking about the, the power of the states in this circumstance. And if we're, we're thinking about the states have these powers, doesn't each state constitution then dictate what they can do within their, their borders, right? So do we yeah. not need to appreciate the differences and really go back to these state constitutions to know whether, you know, maybe by the Michigan constitution, what they're doing is appropriate or inappropriate? I mean, do you think we're going to see more case Supreme, not, yes, state Supreme Court cases play out as well? Yeah, I th- it's a wonderful question. I think we might. And, I, and I, maybe I glossed over this too quickly. Governors only have the power given to them by their states. 
So uh, generally, all of the states have given their governors very broad police powers and, and live free or die power. <laughs> free or die hard, right? Well. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Live free or die hard. But abs absent a state constitution or state statute, governors don't have authority either. And this is the beautiful balance of American politics, right? Unless we've given government the power to take away our rights, they don't have it. And uh, my sense at the state level is most of these uh, state constitutions give incredibly broad ranges of powers to governors. But here's the second half. The federal, federal constitution supremacy clause makes it absolutely clear that no state constitution can do a thing which the federal constitution prohibits. So you couldn't say if you, let's say you're in Nebraska, everybody here has to either be a Christian or they can't go to church. Well, clearly this violates the first amendment, which is supreme relative to anything built into a state constitution or a state statute. So, it, so it's, it's, this, it's this wonderful, delicate, difficult, um, but I think in the final analysis, grand balance between the macro and the micro. Uh, and it's something other countries don't do in the ways we do. And I'm, I'll wager a lot of them say them and we're better for it. That is, they are better for what they do than we are for what we do. Um, but I, I love this system for all its warts and flaws. And you haven't heard much discussion about the 10th Amendment until this last week when yes. people are starting to finally discuss the fact that these powers that are not specifically enumerated to the federal level fall to the states, right? Exactly I think this matters right. very much as we think about all of this uncharted territory of dealing with the pandemic. Right. And we've in the Ninth Amendment that says if we haven't said anything about it, uh, then those those rights are retained by citizens. Ninth and Tenth are a big deal. We just never talk about them because they're much more complicated and difficult. Nick, I've been cutting you off all day. All day. Go ahead. <laughs> Just, um, and, and I mean, the question that I have, I, I think you're the, the way that our system is set up uh, produces really interesting results uh, from a, from a federalist perspective. The, the issue that I have, especially in this situation is that while we have the ability and the fundamental right, uh, we have the fundamental rights that, that we call kind of take for granted in a situation like this, where collective action is such a big part of the, the, the situation, you have elements of state and local governments that are treading on a lot of these individual rights, and people aren't necessarily pushing back on it besides in these theoretical higher level um, you know, institutional constitutional discussions, where you see police departments saying that protesting isn't an essential activity and people aren't up in arms about that, except in, again, broad discussions like we're having right now. While I think that these are important discussions to have, how do you put that perspective and the, the um, have the conversation with the broader population to go, yeah, collective action is important, but at some point what state or local or even federal officials are doing is they're overstepping the the bounds like I, I feel like there's this is a really weird situation where we're all trying to do what we know is right and as uh, again gov uh, governmental entities and, and individuals are looking at this they're overreaching a lot more in ways that they know that they can't but because people are so inclined to be helpful that they you know they're not going to push back against this this is a really scary situation for me because i feel like people I, yeah. I, you know, go, go ahead, Tom. 
No, but I think Bill, you're up next, and then. Well, I was just going to say, you know, as, uh, Nick, I, I keep thinking about was it John Stuart Mill or who said that like your fist, you can your fist is free to swing until it hits somebody's nose, right? Mm-hmm. And so I keep thinking about the right to protest, the right to assemble, uh, the right to movement. Where do we draw that line? Where do we say that at this point, you traveling, you being out is affecting somebody else. And I, I don't know where that line is, right? I think there there are real re- real reasons for a government to say you going out, you being in public is dangerous, right? It, it's that point where your fist is now hitting somebody else's nose. But, but not all action, Tom. I mean, I think as you pointed out, it seems very reasonable to me to say people should be able to go to stores to buy a variety of options, you know, items. And we shouldn't be dictating, you know, you can't buy grass seed, but you can buy chocolate. Right. So I, I don't know if you raise a great point, Nick, where do we draw that line? Um, yeah. I, I have the same worries that Nick does. That is that the rights don't snap back. Uh, when we were last together, we talked a little bit about surveillance and the, the persistence of government uh, sort of surveillance techniques post nine 11 you know, here we sit uh, almost 10 years later, uh, and, and we, we're still looking at all of those sorts of surveillance things fully in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the snapback thing is a big worry for me. Um, the, the second is, you know, sort of the old Lord Acton line, power corrupts mm-hmm. and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I don't think, you know, I had this little debate with a friend the other day. Uh, most people hear that and think that what we were after or what he was after in that line was, well, they'll start taking money and they'll be corrupt in those sort of dirty, um, you know, pedestrian ways. But I, I think what the quote meant was the more power you get, the more power you want. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what animates Donald, Donald Trump to say, I've got absolute power. It's part of what animates Chris Sununu in New Hampshire. I think maybe to say the legislature, uh, I don't need them to disperse uh, coronavirus money. Um this is a this is a huge worry, and it's an even bigger worry, as Nick points out, and I think really uh, perceptively that because people are afraid, they're knuckling under. That is, if you're if you you're willing to give up your assembly rights if you're afraid you're going to get sick, asserting them. So one wonders whether or not we're relinquishing rights that we're going to get back later. Uh, and I know we're going to talk not too long from now in terms of the Apple and Google. Uh, uh, approach to looking at contact tracing. Um, and I don't know, once that, once that horse is out of the barn, how do you get back a sense of individual autonomy? It's one thing to say you've got a right to travel. It's another thing to say, and I think it's important, you've got a right to travel anonymously, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I, I'm, Nick, I'm totally with you, and I don't have any sort of good suggestion about how we do this other than that. I hope people don't find themselves... Uh, What's the right word? Uh, Irritated isn't strong enough, maybe angry. Angry with people that want to file a lawsuit to find the boundaries of the right to assemble or the right to practice religion. Or for that matter, on the other side, the right to seek an abortion in a state like Texas that has said that's a non-essential surgery and you can't have one. The courts have to answer these questions and it's not always excessive litigiousness and mean-spiritedness that gets people there. It's that the, the duty of the courts is to navigate those areas where we don't have clear senses of where the boundaries are. So maybe that's what uh, we can hope for here is the courts will intervene. They'll be able to do so well and smart people will get good arguments to them. Sometimes those ex- those mean-spirited and excessively litigious people, uh, they can be mean-spirited and excessively litigious and still have a point. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, <right? laughs> absolutely. But they get shouted down, you right. know, uh, yeah. all these 
these assholes are suing people during a pandemic. Who could be a more horrible person? Well, the problem is if you don't, and it becomes common practice, let's say, to tell people you can't congregate in safe ways to practice your religion, well, you've eroded the First Amendment in ways you may never get back. And that's Nick's point. And I think it's a really important one. Indeed. Um, should probably we move can... on. But before we do that, um, I thought your your plague analogy was was great. And, and with uh, with San Francisco, um, I'm a little 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 hesitant to keep calling Nancy Pelosi the uh, the plague. But um, I, I, I take your point. It's very good. That's a good way to end, Nick. We should uh, be doing this for a couple hours, but we've got other important things to talk about. Uh, But let's start with some beers. Uh, Philbert, what are you enjoying? So I'm drinking uh, a beer from uh, Hill Farmstead Brewery, which is in uh, Vermont. And we've talked about them before. They are consistently ranked as one of the best breweries um, around. And this is maybe an appropriately named beer. This is their, it's beer. It's a beer called difference and repetition. It feels a little bit like this is, you know, this is unprecedented, but feels eerily similar at the same time. Uh, so difference and repetition is there, it's an American pale ale. And from what I read about it, they basically wrote, they use it to experiment with different combination of hops. So they rotate through different hops combinations. So there's a variety of different difference and repetition beer. So this one is uh, the one made with Comet Galaxy and Simcoe hops. Um, again, this is a little bit like the the Treehouse beers. Everything I have had from Hill Farmstead has been really good. Some of the other ones I had from them, uh, in fact, the first one I had from them, I, I still think is maybe the best beer I've ever had. This one doesn't achieve that standard. This one is, um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of pungent. I've had a lot of real kind of juicy IPAs lately. This one's far less citrusy. It's much more, uh, there's a little bit of a bitterness to it, but it's, um, it's, it's very good. It's got, it's, I mean, it's only 6% alcohol, so it's not like a particularly heavy one, but it's got a lot of flavor. Um, if you like the more kind of, you know, earthy, uh, pungent kind of flavors, you would like it. I would, I would absolutely have another one of them. I w- and I wouldn't complain about it. Phil's reviews have become the best part of this podcast. They absolutely have. You got the right words in there. I just just make shit up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What are you enjoying? Well, first, uh, because I'm going to just do the beer word of the day, I'm going to tell uh, Phil that one of the words he was looking for with Galaxy and Simcoe was resiny. Oh, there you go. They they taste a little bit like resin or pine or something like that. But what I have, and I'm going to just hold it up to the camera here. Uh, is a hop butcher beer called Halogen Farm. Hop butcher, I think, is is as good a brewery as there is in America. They make when they launch a, a beer, uh, people rush out, buy it all up, and you can't get your hands on it. And then they're selling it uh, sort of aftermarket. So this is a, a, a double IPA. That's kind of their specialty. Uh, it too has some uh, Simcoe hops in it. It is so good. I have to say, I've been trying to think of what's the silver lining uh, to the coronavirus uh, crisis. And it is, I don't have to share my hop butcher beer with you people. <laughs> <laughs> I can drink it all myself. <laughs> really, uh, that does good. sound like I'm never... hoarding toilet paper. So I guess I'm going to just say I'm not. <laughs> How about you, Bill? Well, Nick, you want you go and then I'll go. Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> Before we started recording, uh, I, I was telling the guys uh, I had gotten a beer uh, to review this week, and uh, I already drank it because drinking has become quite the pastime under quarantine. But I'm going to review it anyways um, because I do remember it. Uh, I had a, uh, an Irish Exit, which is from uh, Wild Onion Brewery. 
I'm so an Irish ale, uh, Irish red ale. I'm pretty good, uh, slightly above a, a, a Killian's. Um, it had a, some fairly good malty nose, but it also had a, a pretty distinct hoppy finish to it. Um, just a tiny, tiny bit of sweetness. Um, I, I liked it. Um, probably wouldn't have it again, but it's always nice to have an Irish red ale. You yeah. know, we don't have many of them. So, yeah, I, I, I yeah, it was good. One of my I'm biggest worries, out. Bill, before you go was last time I was on, Nick was drinking hibiscus kombucha uh, yes. with a with like I feel like there was a paper umbrella in it and hey man, um, a, a I was doing my cherry part at the top of it. It was so to horrifying. Stay in quarantine. Was... <laughs> there was some kimchi in there, wasn't there? Some it, kimchi. Was kimchi. <laughs> it was it was hard kombucha. Okay, please. Uh, well, I am having my last treatment. Hear you, Nick and I'm Alethea. Get That's right. So Nick and my, my family members, Nick and Alethea, brought me a whole bunch of treehouse, and this is kind of sad because it's the last one, and I'm sad because it's the last one, but also because this is the one. You know, I was I wanted to share more of these. Uh, unlike Tom, I want to share my good beers. <laughs> Uh, and we've, we've actually reviewed this one on the podcast before. It's their haze. It's their double IPA. And it's just, it got, it's, it's so much hops. It's really good. They describe it as dangerously drinkable. And it, it is. And Tom, you've introduced us to double IPAs thing. that are, are very drinkable. And this is, this is one of those. It's different than all the other double IPAs you can get out there. And God, I just, I just wish I had more. So. <laughs> Well, listen, I'm going to bring beer and toilet paper to our next live meeting so that I can make up for my uh, my horrible uh, selfishness. Can't wait to see you in two weeks. Yes. <laughs> um, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, like I said at the beginning, you can find us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, just search for Barstool Politics on there. All right. Time for some speed round. Yep. So, all right. So President Trump has been in office for over three years now. We've gotten used to his often bizarre style of press conferences. But Mondays broke new ground when Trump used his coronavirus briefing to play what can be best described as a propaganda video praising his record on the pandemic. It was a video that even Kim Jong-un would have been impressed with. Uh, The video uh, included clips from Fox News, as well as a handful of state governors praising Trump for the amazing job he has done. Just before playing the video, Trump told the audience, Most importantly, we're going to get back to the reason we're here, which is the success we're having. He then pointed at the seated press corps and told them that he'd answer some questions after the video. And maybe I'll ask you some questions because you're so guilty. Um, Now, as you all know, I'm a regular viewer of these coronavirus briefings and consequently am used to their surreal nature. Yet when he played that video, my jaw jaw was on the ground. To put all this in context, more than 25,000 Americans are dead, half a million infected, and Trump felt it appropriate to spend nearly an hour venting his frustrations at the media and his critics while simultaneously praising his own success. Phil, you force your own students to watch (laughs) weekly propaganda videos of your greatness. So I'm curious about your reaction to all of this. It was well done. Well done. What production company do you use for that? So... um, I mean, this is this is an example, uh, yet another example of Trump, again, sort of defying all the sort of norms that were in place about how a president should behave. So I get to talk about norms for a second. Um, I, You know, he, he's a narcissist, right? Like, it's all about him, everything he talks about. So there's a lot of people dying, but he wants to get up there and talk about him and how he's been he's been great. I, you know, I can't help. And this goes back to something we talked about in the first topic, but I, I think it was David Frum. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that, but I think it was David Frum this week wrote an article 
in which he, and, I, and I've been thinking about it ever since, and this fits perfectly, in which he talks about how Trump is a rhetorical, and you, you kind of mentioned this, Tom, T- Trump is a rhetorical authoritarian. Like he talks like an authoritarian. And, but Frum's argument is essentially he's too lazy to ever be a real authoritarian. Like Trump doesn't actually want to do any of the work that would go in to actually, you know, enacting the stuff that he talks about. <laughs> I like um, that. Yeah, it's, been, it's really stuck with me. I mean, I, now that, you know, there has been there have been things that Trump has has done, you know, that have, that have kind of pushed the limits of presidential power. But it gets back to this idea uh, of of, you know, in a time where most presidents would be using this situation to expand presidential power, he's not necessarily doing it. He's talking, you know, about it, uh, but he's not necessarily doing it. And, and I, um, I don't, that's better than him being an actual authoritarian. I'm torn on the, how much it matters because the rhetoric does matter in some ways. And, and he's, he said so much crazy stuff over the years that we don't necessarily react or call him out on it. And, and this should be shocking. Now, again, I don't know that he's actually going to follow through with any of it, but in and of itself, a president getting up and saying that and showing essentially a propaganda video, that should be, again, in any other presidential administration, this would have been a massive, massive story. And it's just become the norm. Tom, what's your, what's your read on all this? <laughs> yes, he's a heavy-handed narcissist. Yes, <laughs> these briefings diminish uh, public knowledge and and public trust. I don't. I'm not especially trustworthy. I don't regard government as trustworthy, <laughs> but I, but I think this is even worse. I, let me try two other things though. The first is the press is guilty of some things in this universe. The nature of the questions asked has sometimes been so dumb uh, and and so inexcusably shallow uh, that it rivals some of what the president has done. I'm reminded, I have watched very little of this. I'm with Phil. I've found my sanity challenged by uh, by watching these things live. Uh, somebody asked him the other day if he was going to pardon the guy, spoiler alert, he was going to pardon the guy from Tiger King. Very this important. Is a, this is a presidential press conference on an international pandemic that is pushing the world into a depression. And somebody in the media wants, and and it's not like that was an outlier. There have been a lot of terrible questions that don't, I think, make the media look good either. And I found myself thinking, uh, as I so often do, we deserve better than this. We deserve a better president. We deserve a better thoughtful and, and well-educated media. Uh, that's my take on it. We deserve better than this from all of them. Sure. Yeah. Not from Anthony Fauci. I realize that he's on the verge of canonization uh, in Rome at this Jesus point. Uh, so I just want to be careful and say, I realized that maybe he should be our next president. As mm. to the rest of them, we deserve better. He's, he's 79. That, it's unbelievable. Joe yeah. Biden's 105. Fauci's a youngster <laughs> compared to the, the progressive candidate. Can we come, please? Oh, Nick. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I watched the entire tape and then I watched Trump's reaction as it, as it was, was playing, which was very interesting, almost more interesting than the tape itself. Right, right. Um, right. it's, um, yeah, there's, there's no reason to, to show something like that during a press briefing. Having said that, there was half of, not half, but a significant part of the video that was related to the media's coverage of the early days of the pandemic as well, which they're you know, constantly touting that 
uh, not touting, but lambasting Trump that he didn't do enough in, in the, uh, the early stages of the pandemic. Uh, and that, you know, he, he, there were clear signs that something needed to be done. And there was plenty of evidence that the media thought the same thing or was evincing the same perspective that the president and the administration was. Um, and then on top of that, in the middle of the press conference, if it was, I think it was CNN specifically, CNN and MSNBC cut away, then come back and then have these lower thirds on their screen that are just this vitriolic, childish, just high school gossipy bullshit about how the president is acting as opposed to what is actually going on in the press conference. Yeah, I, I, I think that he shouldn't be doing that. He we we do deserve better than that, but they should also be be held to if you are trying to to paint him as the monster that he is a lot of the time, then don't play his game. Be better than that. Tell us something that is is useful in this particular situation. I, I, I again we had the conversation last week. Regardless of what you think is being said, you cutting away from these discussions is a detriment to the American people, whether it's true or false. You want people to know what's going on so you can either agree or refute the information or re- agree with or refute the behavior. Yeah. So I, I, shut up, Bill. I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow no, this I, is harder I, when we can see each other <laughs> like this than when we can't. So I, both of you, you know, both of you have, have, have made critiques of the media and I, and they're, they're valid. I, I, I come back around to the, um, the idea that blame can be distributed without being divided, right? So we can, we can find blame. We don't have to say that, well, Trump, it's the, the whataboutism stuff. Like I, it, we can still say Trump is totally wrong, right? And, and say, but there's some issues with the media. But at the same time, like, I, what is the media supposed to do? So if they're not supposed to be critical of him and they have to cover him, what are they just supposed to broadcast everything he says without addressing the truth in it? I mean, they're, they're, no, so no, no. questions we, on we, Tiger we King, I get it, but other things like it feels like those, those are the minorities. That's the exception, and we 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 cover that because it is stupid, and and it goes on both sides. OANN or whatever has gotten this has gotten a White House press pass, and they it's a super conservative media outlet, and they you know like isn't abortion bad to kill babies? And those are their questions they ask in a briefing. So it goes both ways, but I mean they have to play some role what role what role do you see them playing either one well, of I can you think I'm it not... too. i can think it too the first is news should tell you what happened not what they think about what happened and and as i watch well i don't mean totally exclusively but the primary responsibility it seems to me of a journalist is to tell you what happened and and too frequently especially if you're watching cnn fox or msnbc they're not telling you what happened. They're telling you what they think about what they right. think happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is, it seems to me to focus people, even if it's just by their questions, on the things that matter. So on a day when you announce a $2.2 trillion stimulus package to ask if the Tiger King guy is getting a pardon, I realize I'm cherry picking the worst possible example of media malfeasance there is. But uh, ask questions that convey topical importance. And it feels to me like there has been less of that than there has been gotcha questioning. I'm not defending, believe me, the video, the president in general, or these press conferences uh, themselves. I just want to say that I think, as you do, Phil, there's a lot of blame to be spread around here. 
and it's driven a lot of people I know, including me, to the BBC. Think about that. I said this to you guys last time. I get all my news about America from the from the BBC World uh, <laughs> Station because they tell me what happened in an yeah. even-handed, thoughtful way, uh, and they're not genuflecting to everybody who says they're an expert. Well, the hard thing, I, I agree with you, Tom, the, but the hard thing with telling people what happened isn't always easy with the Trump administration because they, mm-hmm. you know, the, the way he frames things, he, Trump is very good at setting the narrative and sticking with that narrative and repeating it over mm-hmm. and over and over again. So if you're a journalist, there is some value in putting a broader context on it, especially with, with a president who is so loose with the truth, right? Mm-hmm. So that it puts them in a difficult place. Um, so I, so I, I get that. And I think there's also a difference. You're, you're, you're all right that there are some bad questions. And then there are, there are journalists who are looking to pick a fight, which Trump inevitably takes. Mm-hmm. But there are also some really, really good questions that he doesn't answer um, right. or, or that he deflects, right? And so it's, it's kind of, it's hit and miss. And there are good yep. journalists. And you can see it in these press conferences mm-hmm. with those who are just trying to be the, the journalist version of Trump where they're yelling over each yeah, other. Yeah. And then there are those serious journalists. And mm-hmm. I guess that's where my heart is with the serious journalists who want to push administration, right? Which I think is the, the role of, of, you know, of journalists at this point. The other thing I, I know we got to move on, I would say is that this is stupid for Trump, right? This is all dumb because yeah. think about how well politically the governors, Democratic and Republican governors are doing by taking this in a serious, even-handed, scientific way. People are loving their Democratic and Republican governors because of what they're doing in a bipartisan way. And this would be, this is the, once again, a softball that Trump should be hitting out of the park. Right. If he was doing Mike Pence right now, that's all, all he'd have yep. to do is be Mike Pence he might win this reelection. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and he's just, he, he can't get outside of his own animosities with, with, with everybody. And it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's dumb. Yeah. It makes me mad. He doesn't have to worry about it anyways, because he's going to win. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, I hope we come back and, and I, we're, the, the ding has happened. So I'll just throw it out there. I'd like to come back to the, uh, the sort of tyranny of experts here, because I, I'm starting to feel like uh, I'm surrounded by people who are experts on things that they're not. I listened mm-hmm. to Tom Friedman on CNN last night for about eight seconds before I realized he's talking not about economics. I'm not sure he's an expert on that. Uh, I'll concede that he is one. But but he's he's giving medical advice. He's talking about malaria drugs. And I'm not talking about the economic consequences of them. I'm talking about malaria drugs and their efficacy in the treating of this virus. Right. So this this genuflecting to everybody who's got some kind of expertise is a little worrisome. But maybe we can come back to that another time when we're talking about the media. No, I think uh, real quick, I think that's that's spot on, especially when you see somebody like Anthony Fauci, mm-hmm. who brings clarity to things. Right. You're like, oh, my goodness, like this. This is not this doesn't have to be partisan. This this there, there are facts out there. Explain it to us in a an adult way. And yeah, we can. And who isn't can... afraid to say what he doesn't know. That's yes. the best. That's the thing everybody loves about this guy. Ask him a question. He doesn't know the answer to. And what does he say? I'm not sure. It's stunning to people that somebody asked Tom Friedman about the chemical uh, composition of a malaria drug, and he'll bullshit his way through an answer to make you think he knows what it is. I, so I wouldn't, re- I wouldn't refer that to that as the tyranny of the experts. That's the sidelining or the diluting of the expert. Every, everyone acts like an expert as opposed to actually listening to the people who actually are experts on things. In their fields. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
All right, let's move on and let's talk about the Supreme Court again. So last week we discussed the Wisconsin primary and the ugly political battle that played out between the governor, state legislature, and state Supreme Court. We also briefly touched on on how the U.S. Supreme Court weighed in. We thought it might be fun to take a deeper dive on that case with Tom this week. Up until the Wisconsin case, the Supreme Court had been moving gingerly through a year of blockbuster cases, but this decision was much more controversial with the court split five to four along ideological lines. Some have suggested this may be a preview of things to come if the court is forced to weigh in on the presidential election in November. Tom, what was your read of this decision? Yeah, you know, there's a deep dive that you do from the three meter uh, uh, board where you're way, way up above water and you go way below. And there's a racing dive where you kind of skim across the top. And, and I want to do a different kind of the, the latter one, because you guys have talked about this case, so we don't have to spend a ton of time on it. But the one dimension of it that I thought was worth coming back to and, and thinking about a little bit is how interestingly this contrasts the judicial philosophies of the conservative side of the court and the liberal side of the court. Hmm. I, you'll, I, I've heard what you've said about this already, so I don't want to plow that ground again. But on, on the conservative five-vote side, what you had was a statement that this is a narrow, technical, statutory, state-level issue that doesn't require extensive Supreme Court intervention. And in fact, it probably in some ways is. On the Ginsburg side, you had a much broader, much more public policy-driven, in some ways sort of motivated by um, uh, fear, and I don't mean that in a pejorative negative way. I mean a genuine worry about are people going to go to the polls and, and get sick? And because of that, the one philosophy, the former says, our power here is limited to interpreting statute, honoring precedent, and doing what previous courts have done. On the dissent side, their power is unlimited, at least in some senses, because they think they should be able to see beyond uh, uh, precedent, which says federal judges should not intervene in elections on the eve of an election. Federal judges should not interfere with state level decision making like this and just make broad public policy decisions. So um, that's the thing that was the most important and interesting to me about the case was the back and forth between the judge uh, justices about what the grounds were for either not intervening and telling Wisconsin, uh, go ahead and do your thing because this was really just about what day those ballots were postmarked, right? When you get right down to it, uh, when did they get them and when were they postmarked? And the other side saying, well, wait a minute, this is a big deal. It's a pandemic. We're going we're gonna to look beyond the law. We're going to look beyond the statutes and the language, and we're going to try and do what we think is right. So I just wanted to come back to it to say, here's this really fascinating way of thinking about the different ways uh, that sort of strict constructionists and living constitutionalists think about the law. You saw it in spades here, and this opinion is only four pages long, five pages long, so you can read it in, in a heartbeat and see all of that. And for me, the you, you were talking about good faith. I, I think you have a court who both sides are operating in very uh, absolute good faith. Mm -hmm. And I'm always struck by it depends on what you focus on. That's right. And if you only heard... If the one side just presented your case, I think you would say, of course, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And then you hear the other side, you're like, well, that makes perfect sense. I, I am sympathetic to the majority's argument about you don't change election rules right close to an election. I'm also really sympathetic mm -hmm. to the minority's argument that disenfranchisement when the voters made no mistakes also matters, right? And this yes. is why it's so hard. Yeah. 
this this is a case, it seems to me, uh, that sort of illustrates this broader need in American society to tra- uh, trust that people are acting in good faith. Uh, we're so far beyond in our um, polarizing on, on every issue that we're tempted to say that whoever thinks differently than we do is the enemy. So I'm, I, I, it's so refreshing, I think, Bill, to get out there on the table. Both sides have plausible, uh, well-supported legal arguments. No one's the enemy. And, and I don't mean to suggest, uh, I'd probably have come down on the Ginsburg side of this case, given uh, a chance to vote. But I'm, I'm totally sympathetic with the idea that the federal precedents, the federal law, and even the state laws suggest that what Ginsburg wanted to do was to go well beyond what her authority in this case should have been. Mm-hmm. So uh, we don't need to spend a lot of time on it because you've talked a lot of the facts through. But I was just hoping to get that one. Boy, if, if listeners go out and read the five pages of this, you want to see two different judicial philosophies. Here they are in the most easily accessible way to see them imaginable. Can I, can I ask a clarifying question? What so one of the arguments could be so you were saying you know precedent, state law, and all of that uh, is on the sort of side of the conservative justices. Um, is it possible to view this? I, I mean, the Voting Rights Act has been sort of thrown out, but at the federal level, what sorts of protections are there for voting rights? Is it possible that the court was would basically in some way come down by saying that these law this law is effectively disenfranchising people, and you have you know, constitutional or federal rights to vote or to participate in the election that 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 are in contrast here. Yeah, I, I you know how much I love the phrase picking nits, and I don't want to pick nits with you. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's the law that arguably disenfranchised people. Uh, I think the argument that Ginsburg and and her three colleagues made was that the application of the law right. effectively uh, disenfranchised people. But but let's please remember this. Early voting had gone on for weeks and weeks prior to this decision. People that wanted a ballot and asked for them earlier had them. And I think the court's position was uh, you can't let an exigent circumstance trump the statutes and precedents that have long governed in this area. I'm not quite ready to say I think the Voting Rights Act has been thrown out. Parts of it, of course, have. Um, And I'm not even ready to say that I think this suggests that the Roberts Court doesn't take seriously the franchise. I think they take seriously states applying the laws as they're written and empowering states to decide what they'd like to do. Now, listen, the November election is not tomorrow. And states that have a feeling that, boy, we need absentee uh, dates to be extended, if they're not right now in their state houses doing it, the problem lies with them. Not right. with the Supreme Court, it seems to me. So I guess my question is, is there a limit at the federal level to what a state can do? So, I mean, you're saying it's up to the states, but a state could structure. I mean, if if a Republican Party is in control and they don't want turnout, could they effectively pass laws that are, you know, go, go to the extreme that are like, you know, malignant laws, like they are intentionally disenfranchising people. There are there are limits to what a state can do. So sure at some are. point, the court yeah. would step in. Of so it, to say that it's just up to the states is, I mean, I, I get within within some range, it's up to mm-hmm. states, but. Well, it, it, there's a set of precedents that talk to things like poll taxes. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a sort of a clever lawsuit suggesting that in an environment where you have to file an absentee ballot, putting a stamp on it is the equivalent of a poll tax. I think that's sort of a silly 
uh, argument. Um, but so there's, there's precedent on questions that surround voting, like poll taxes. Uh, and uh, it seems to me at, at the more fundamental level, the Supreme Court has said we, we are not endeavoring to uh, disenfranchise. They've, they have overruled ID kinds of rules that were too onerous. Um, this is, I, I, it seems to me this is another place where there's some very difficult questions to ask. Mm-hmm. The Carter Commission, uh, you might remember this long ago, concluded that absentee voting was rife with fraud. Uh, now that's Jimmy Carter, uh, the Democratic president. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we've gotten better at it than we were then. Maybe there's reasons to think it's not. I guess my point is, on one side are those who say, let's do everything we can, motor voter, uh, automatic registration to get people to the polls. And on the other side, people saying, well, now let's not go so fast. So if people don't vote for three years, and I don't recall what year or what state it is, I want to say it's Ohio, they purge them from the voting records. Well, I don't know. I think you can make a colorable argument that if you haven't voted in three years, you might not still live in the state or you might not be interested in voting. The other side might say, well, listen, the right to vote is so significant. No one should ever show up at the polls living at the address they're at and be told they can't vote because they haven't voted in the previous two elections. I get both sides. And I think the court's going to have to be, to use the John Roberts phrase, a referee here, which things go outside the boundaries and which side, which things don't. Poll taxes, outside. Some ID requirements, inside. Uh, purging voter records too fast, outside. Purging voter records after some substantial number of years or months, um, maybe inside. Uh, I'm just not ready to say, as I saw a lot of the commentators saying since this opinion, the Roberts court doesn't care about voting and this is a harbinger of everything that's going to happen uh, in, in the presidential election. State legislators can solve the problem right now for themselves. If they set up dates, if they put together absentee uh, voting approaches, uh, the Supreme Court's not in the business of saying, you know, well, uh, we want it to be 10 days rather than 14 or 14 days rather than 21. They're in the business saying states set up their business and we're going to honor it. Sing it, sister. And, and I hope. I hope states look at what happened in Wisconsin. I said this last week and, yeah. and use it as a model of why you need to get in gear more quickly. Right. right. Uh, or this, this, yeah. Or on the flip side, why you need to do an even better job of disenfranchising people since it didn't work out well for Republicans. Well, that was really interesting that, yeah, we, we got to move on. But yeah, the fact that the, the, um, the liberal challenger won that important yeah. st- seat uh, mm-hmm. and there's a big case for Wisconsin. There's a big case coming up about voter rolls. Mm-hmm. And so that's, yeah. we can we'll hit that in the future that's going to so. go to that supreme court uh and let's just say that the supreme court ruled on their state supreme court did and the justice that has now been unseated recused himself because of that election it it's oh my goodness it, it, that, that is such an interesting question so we will we'll come back to that because we got to talk about tracing so last week Apple and Google announced a joint effort to create a smartphone-based system for notifying people if they were in contact with someone that tested positive for COVID-19 within the last two and a half weeks. Uh, The two tech giants said they wanted to create a system that offers the maximum public health benefit without compromising individual privacy. Unlike some other approaches, Apple and Google claim they won't collect location information or identifying information about who tests positive. When asked about the initiative, President Trump noted, quote, well, it's an amazing thing, but a lot of people have some very big constitutional problems with it. When asked to follow up, uh, Trump deflected, saying he, quote, didn't want to get into that because we have a whole constitutional thing. 
Uh, Phil, you once spent three years in a Turkmenistan prison because you innocently shared your cell phone location with Turkmenistan's president, Gurban Guli, Bertie Mohamedov. Uh, what's your reaction? And I nailed it again to this development. Uh, you know, it, it's an interesting. So I, I've, I've, I don't, I don't, there's lots of different ways to go with this. There have been some new uh, reports, studies, not reports, not really the right word, uh, plans that have come out from various think tanks, conservative, you know, liberal, all different types about how we reopen society. And and several of them have mentioned something like this. We have this technology available uh, in which, you know, it, it allows contact tracing. If I get diagnosed with coronavirus, they can ping my phone and figure out where I was at any given time and anyone who was close to me. Um, it's, it's a power, it's a, it's a tremendous technology that we could be using, but it also comes with, you know, obvious concerns. The, I think the plan that I had, I had seen looked at to, took the data and put it in the hands of not a government or a corporation. It was some sort of, you know, commission that was designed to see this and the data is released, you know, erased every 45 days. Uh, I don't know how much comfort that should 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 grant um but i mean these are the questions that we're going to like if we want to start opening society we either have to have widespread testing or some sort of contact tracing or and and so these are the dilemmas that we're going to have to wrestle with and think about as we move forward over the next year and a half part of the thing part of the part part of the thing that i find interesting is the the you know the number of people who are concerned about this um I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned about it. The idea, especially, you know, Google having all of the information. You better not be because I'm coming up next. <laughs> no, but, but I think the thing that has been surprising to me is the number of people who are alarmed by this, because it seems like this is the world we already live in. Google already knows everything about me, right? Apple already, I walk into an Apple store and my phone and my watch both buzz with welcome to the Apple store, right? Like they already know where I am. They know what I'm doing. The NSA, as we talked about, has been doing this sort of shit for decades. So it seems like, and there's part of me, you know, the, there's the big part of me that says this is awful. There's another part of me that says they're already doing all of this. They might as well use it for good. <laughs> <laughs> Please. That's, that's a good way to transition to Tom. Go Tom. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, I hardly know where to start. <laughs> the, the technology they're going to use is, is fascinating to me. Uh, it's not GPS, it's not your cell signal, and it's not even Wi-Fi. It's Bluetooth. Hmm. And the reason for that, and I, and I think this is important to mention, is that um, the idea is to figure out who's been sufficiently close to another person that they might have transmitted the disease. Right. So phones emit these ID numbers. They pick them up from one another. Uh, it's important to say that Google, which is Android, and Apple, the iOS, are 100% of all cell phone iOSs on Earth. So you do not have an alternative if these two companies put themselves together and this is a voluntary system, but if it wasn't. Um, so uh, here's my problem. Uh, first of all, will it work? I have doubts that it will work in any way that's meaningful, partly because uh, Bluetooth works when you pass somebody on the street. Bluetooth works in lots of ways that suggest that you'd have all sorts of false positives, uh, contacts that you never had real contact with. Um, you might have people that decide to use the app maliciously. Um, we're watching people do Zoom bombing. This is a new phrase for me. I haven't had anybody Zoom bomb yet. But, you know, I mean, people who are taking advantage of a situation to make it worse. Well, 
in this system where you simply self-report that you've been tested positive, and then everybody who was in a Bluetooth range of you gets a note, hey, you might have been exposed. I just want you to think about how many people panic when their phone beeps and on it is a notification, you're uh, at risk of having coronavirus because you were in Bluetooth range of somebody who might have had it. But the second thing is, do you really believe that when all of this data is aggregated, it doesn't get used for something else? Mm-hmm. And I just, if you do, I just have one word for you, Snowden. Everybody <laughs> thought he was a nut. No one thought the government was doing any of these things he alleged until he put all this information out there. Mm-hmm. I think we're our own worst enemies because Phil's right. We've given these these corporations, incredible access to who we are, where we are, what we're doing and that sort of thing. But man, oh man, when you start to weave that into CDC or FDA or TSA, or just find another three-letter alphabet entity that may have access to it, that really, really frightens me. Hmm. Nick, you're nodding your head. (laughs) <laughs> so here's here's the issue that I have with it. I don't know if you guys have seen it or if I brought it up uh, on here or I was talking to somebody else, but there were maps over the past few weeks where they were tracking uh, before Florida put any of their stay-at-home orders in place or anything, when spring break was going on, that uh, there were different groups that were aggregating data based on cell phone use, usage, and you could uh, um, shrink it down to an individual 100-yard section of a particular beach or something like that, mm-hmm. and then extrapolate it across the country to see where those people traveled and who they came in contact with and who they could have spread the uh, the disease to based on the proximity that these people were you know, to anybody else that they were. Uh, so it's, it's not the fact that they're going to build this. It's already there. They have all the data already, and we have no concept of the depth of the data that they already have. They're just going to flick a switch and say that this is a new, a new service and a, a new safety or security measure that, you know, is, is to, for, for the benefit of the, the wider population, which is extraordinarily disconcerting for me. Um, let, let me I, just I, throw one. Oh, I'm sorry, Nick, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll, I'll keep going after I, you're done. <laughs> I just wanted to throw one legal notion out here, and it is, please let's all remember the Carpenter case that looked at the question of whether or not government had a right to essentially track your location uh, there via cell phone tower uh, data. Now, the answer was no, but um, there is a thing called the third party doctrine. And, and this is a Fourth Amendment notion that says when you relinquish information to a third party, you've waived your right to privacy in it. Well, when I waive my right to privacy by downloading an app relative to a virus, and I say to Apple and Google, who are going to write terms and conditions that will be dense, unreadable, and filled with legalese that no one will even look at, and that also says, you know, Google has this health care initiative that they aggregate data in. We're going to push this into that. I, I find myself wondering how many places... Uh, I get this information and at the end of the day, doesn't government get it because you relinquished it to a third party and you've waived your fourth amendment rights. So I'm sorry, Nick, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just, I want to throw out there that that the law doesn't necessarily protect you just because these are uh, private business entities that guarantee that you're going to do it voluntarily and anonymously. So you're not downloading the app. (laughs) 
Me? Please. That seems a little suspect. Listen, I thought about putting on my mask and a foil hat because we're on video this time, but I'm saving the foil hat for a different uh, episode. Um, I, I, the other point that I was going to make, just from a societal standpoint, is you hear some medical uh, and uh, federal officials talking about what this is going to look like when we start to open up the economy, state officials, especially going, well, you know, if we do widespread testing, we'll be able to see who has antibodies and who's already had the, had the disease and, and, and who's still susceptible to it. And you start coming up with these different kind of groups that are able to function in society more than others would um, because of their particular either immunity or exposure to the virus. And if you think you have this aggregated data that is not by any means scientific or conclusive or even remotely accurate, what that does to segments of the population, let's say you do that, it goes all the way to the election. Should people that aren't among these specific groups not be able to go vote in person because they're they're not within this, uh, again, yeah. within this particular subset of the population? That's really, really scary. You don't, you, uh, fine, you have my data. I, I, you know, that should not influence the way that I vote or, or, or live my life. That's fucking insane. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking I, to I, myself, I, how would you get people to opt in? Phil's exactly right. I'm not downloading this app. Uh, but but I, imagine if government said we have a limited number of uh, Corona, uh, I think it's coronavirus tests, not COVID-19 tests. We have a limited number of tests. And here's who's going to the front of the line. Anybody who downloads this app. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, you know now is that government coercion? I think it is. Is it appropriate to say to people if you won't download our app and give up your privacy, you're not entitled to a test, or you sit second? Phil, I see you nodding yes. This is see. Here's the thing: liberals trust government, conservatives trust business, libertarians trust nobody, and that's <laughs> uh, put me in that last category. I don't trust any of these people. Right. Here's, here's my here's my my reaction to all of this is this is like I, I text you this last night, Tom. This is Orwell by choice. Yeah. And I think the benefits of this technology are going to be so powerful that we will say we will opt mm-hmm. in. I mean, and I think you're right. If if the if the argument is that it's too dangerous to let people out if if they haven't downloaded this app, people will download the app, right? I mean, we will do this. And so to me, it, it feels False. all. It I'm all getting feels all my nap- pop butcher beard that I can keep in one place and toilet paper. I'm never leaving right. again. If downloading no, an I- app, so Phil knows where I'm going for dinner, uh, <laughs> is the condition for leaving my house. I'm staying so, in. And I, I feel like we this this argument again. It, it, I worry about these privacy issues. I think you guys are are on to something. But I feel like younger generations do not. And I, I see where this is going. Where China's gone. Where I mean, the world is moving. Where be- the benefits outweigh the potential cost. So don't bring I mean, up China, I, I think man. we have to think more seriously about how we accept this is inevitable and put up some barriers to, to protect our privacy. I mean, Tom, a few, you know, last, uh, uh, more than a few episodes ago, you were talking about selling your data. I, I really, I, I think this has to be part of the way where we assume this is people's own data and you can't get it unless I give it up. And I, I, I think that's where the conversation needs to go. It's going to happen. Let's think about doing it in a sensible way. No, you live free and die hard, goddammit. Yo, so I, <laughs> I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I, I, I think that uh, you were talking about enticing people to give it up. There, people are just going to give it up. 
right? Like we, yeah. we, we, how many people submitted their pictures to a Russian company so that they could look old like four months ago, right? We're going right. to, we're going to give it up instantly. People were going to want to know uh, the, 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 the think tanks who came up with some of these plans said, said that they thought just the incentive of have, if, if you tell people you put this phone on your, this app on your phone and we'll tell you if you've been in contact with someone with COVID-19, people are downloading it. Not everyone, yeah. but enough people that it will, it will make it, it will right. work. Here's what we haven't said. The wrong people are downloading it, right? I mean, the people that are really thinking about privacy issues, government overreach, medical uh, data anonymity and that sort of, they're worried and not doing it. The people that are sending their pictures to Russia or, uh, or are downloading it so that they can immediately tick the box and say, I was exposed just to see what happens. The guys that are trying to put you know, the, their face into a Zoom conference, or, they're the ones downloading it. This is, I'm not even sure it works. Let, given who's likely enough to put it on their phones. I, I think in the name of good faith, we should also say that I think people will, some people will do it just to ch- tick a box, but I think a lot of people will do it because they, it's the, they're wanting to be a good citizen, right? They're wanting to like, you know, they're, they're wanting to participate in this collective activity of tracing the spread of the virus and all of that. Sure. But it's what happens. Well, I want to be a good that. person, but I'm not going to do it. I just need to say that out <laughs> loud. I mean, but, but the, the question is, and, and, and this would be one, I don't want to express expertise over a thing I'm not, but what would an epidemiologist do with information produced by an app like this when they're aware that it is not a measured sample, that there might be huge numbers of people who downloaded it just to hit yes or something like that, because the app isn't transparent enough to know if it's Phil, who's this wonderful collective socialist, Sweden-loving, health-promoting uh, you know, collective interest guy or Nick, who's downloading it to hit the yes button to find out what his friends do when they figure out it was Nick that was Bluetoothing close enough to them that they're now all exposed. You see what I'm after? I don't even know if that has any value. <laughs> That was a good one. All right, let's move on and let's talk. Uh, return to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court recently weighed in on a case where a sheriff's deputy in Kansas ran a check of the license plate of a moving Chevrolet pickup truck. Uh, the deputy learned that the vehicle was registered to Charles Glover Jr. and that Mr. Glover's driver's license had been revoked. Based on that information and nothing more, the deputy stopped the truck, which Mr. Glover turned out to be driving. Glover was prosecuted for driving without a license, and he moved to suppress the evidence against him, arguing that the stop had violated the Fourth Amendment, which forbids unreasonable searches and seizures. This is a really, really interesting case, Tom. So tell us about what the, how the court decided this. Yeah, it's nice that it dovetails with the question of medical information privacy, because uh, here we've got a full on Fourth Amendment case where uh, we're giving what I would regard as considerable deference to a police officer's judgment about who to pull over and for what reasons they should be pulled over. Now, it turns out that most of the Supreme Court, my beloved Supreme Court, disagrees with me because it was an eight to one decision. but, but Justice Sotomayor, who I think I've on a number of occasions mentioned as a champion of the Fourth Amendment, is the one vote in this case. Thomas wrote the majority opinion, and I think many listeners will know, but I'll just tell you that you can be pulled over for an investigative stop by a police officer, not under a probable cause standard, but under something called a reasonable suspicion standard. It is not as robust as probable cause. So, Uh, to come into your house, to get a warrant, 
you need probable cause. That's, that's a high standard, and it is that there's good reason to believe that you've committed a crime. The reasonable suspicion standard sits below that, and that's just a good faith belief that probably something here inappropriate took place or a crime happened. So in this case, uh, a police officer, as they often do, is following a, a, a truck, in this case, not or I should say a SUV, and they frequently check license numbers. Turns out the license number here is for a guy who's got a suspended driver's license. So without seeing who's driving the truck, without making any further effort at identifying a driver or anything like it, he's pulled over. And the argument he's making is, look, that's not reasonable suspicion. You can't assume the driver of a truck. Uh, I shouldn't say truck all this time. SUV is a better word. So it's not like a 16-wheeler. You shouldn't assume anything. You should put yourself in a position where you know enough to reach a standard of reasonable suspicion. Now, what the eight justices said was, that's enough. You run the license plate. If the owner of the truck has a suspended license, it's perfectly appropriate to assume the owner is driving the car. Even Justice Kagan, who said things about Uber drivers and minivan drivers and all sorts of things, said, I'm okay with the idea that we're just going to assume that the owner is the driver and allow the police to pull them over. Now, it doesn't sound like that big a deal when the conviction is for a very minor uh, offense, like driving on a suspended license. But the next time a police officer pulls you over, and it's simply because they thought maybe you were something, I think you should reflect on whether you think this case was a good idea. Phil, you still don't have a driver's license. No, um, just to avoid this very reason. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, the the flip side of it to push it on the other to the other end of the spectrum is if if the the owner of the truck was not wanted for an expired license, but was wanted for murder, right? Then, then it feel, it's easier to get on board with. Well, hey, we should pull them over. Uh, you know, just to see, it seems like this the guy's car driving around. We should we should test that. But it's as you slide down that scale and you start weighing the sort of benefits and the cost, the benefits of arresting someone for an expired license seem relatively small. And, and so the, in some ways, the bigger question is, to what degree do we want to permit the state to interfere with us as we live our lives? So there's this old case, now it's like the mid-1970s or something like that. And, and the question was, can a cop pull a car over because the people in it appeared to be of, and I want to say it was Mexican ancestry or something like that. The idea being, you know, if you're in Arizona and you're behind a car and there's five guys in it and they look Mexican, well, maybe they're illegal immigrants. And uh, the answer then was no. Mm -hmm. But I, so I find myself wondering, how is that case distinguishable from this one? Uh, they're both uh, tiny thresholds that police cross before they pull a car over. And that was, of course, Sandra, or I'm sorry, Sotomayor's concern that, if we give this much deference to police, there's literally almost no limit. We won't even have to ask anymore why they pulled somebody over. So now you're in a position where you're constantly wondering, is a state trooper going to pull me over? And if he or she does, I'm not in a position to contest being pulled over because they've got enormous deference when they do. 
Well, and that was Sotomayor's uh, dissent was talking about like demographic data. Yeah. Like this is what is going to drive these decisions now. Mm-hmm. And I will say, like, I was surprised this was eight to one. Mm-hmm. I felt like it didn't follow along ideological lines, but I thought there would be more mm-hmm. concerned about the privacy issue. And Thomas's argument was that, well, this is common sense. And that bugged me. Like anytime somebody says this is common sense, well, you know, what is common sense? How are we defining this? Mm-hmm. Um I get it. It feels like the standard should be higher. If you see the driver, you know, if you have some data on the driver and he's he's elderly and you see and it looks like an elderly person. Great. You know, then I feel like there's not probable cause or whatever, but there's more evidence. But this felt really this felt icky to me. Um, it, it feels icky. It's to a me legal too. term, right? Yeah, it is. A, it is <laughs> a legal right. term. Uh-huh. Uh, but so Kagan, who's part of the eight that voted uh, to support the the majority here says, well, what about an officer that has a consistent record of pulling over for illegitimate reasons? And then says, well, we'll come to that if it happens. Oh my God. How many officers already pull over for illegitimate reasons? Well, you know, I'm I'm not, this is, this is not a slam on police, but listen, the courts are filled with cases where police have overstepped. And this is an invitation to keep doing it. And if Kagan was worried about it, she shouldn't have been in a majority and saying, well, we'll come back to this some other day when we find somebody who pulls over lots and lots of cars that didn't belong on the side of the road instead of just one that didn't belong on the side of the road. Anyway, it's it's nice that we pair this up with that Apple and Google thing, because this this is one of the big three questions in American law for the next 10 years. To what degree can the state get into your business and how can they do it? And, and these two things sort of pair up. Dick, your, your business. No, please. Let, let, we, we have to move on. We're <laughs> yeah. way over time. Sorry. All right, all right. I'm sorry. It's probably no, no, no. It's no. coronavirus. Yeah. We can go along. All right, all right. This is a fun one. All right, so all right, gentlemen, for our final topic, we're going to look at Trump's much-talked-about Council to Reopen America. This is the group that will help advise Trump on when it's time to open the country. A list of prospective counselors was reported by Fox News this week that included Trump family members Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, as well as Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross, who for the record hasn't been awake for a meeting in the last five years, and Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin. The list caused the internet to go crazy coming with its own, up with its own version of council of a council dream team. Trump has said he was looking for the greatest minds, including the business of politics and reason. I'd like each of you to offer up a name of someone who would be totally unqualified for the position, but still might be more qualified than the proposed group. Again, the funnier, the better. So let's start with Tom. No, no, I'm not going like first. You're Nick, I got to hear from Nick. All right, Nick. All right, Nick. You, you lead us off. I don't see any. Any problem with this group? I don't know what you guys are talking about. Um, no, I, I, I feel like uh, because of their their salience and and uh, ability to discuss things openly and freely, I don't see why you wouldn't have the entire cast of the View be the people that would open up the economy. But <laughs> love it, love nice. it, well played, very nice. <laughs> 
All right, uh, Phil. Let's look, look, Tom. Phil, where are you at? Uh, so I, I, you can't. I couldn't help but notice that there is not a single uh, person trained in science or medicine <laughs> on the panel, and so I feel like anyone along those lines would be more qualified. And I've been watching Thirty Rock, and I just couldn't help but think. I don't know if you remember Dr. Leo Spichemin from Thirty Rock. I know he's a fictional character, so I was trying to figure out who's the real life equivalent of Leo Spichemin, and it's got to be Dr. Oz. So that's who I'm voting Dr. for. Dr. Oz. Oz at least has a medical degree, which gives him more qualifications than anyone else on the committee. (laughs) This is great. This is what I'm looking for, Tom. (laughs) My friends, what is that we have not enough of going forward but money as we race into a depression? So what we need here is someone who can make money out of thin air, and I'm going to nominate Bernie Madoff as a member of this group. (laughs) Now, I recognize I've got some obstacles here. He's not dead, but he's got a 150-year jail sentence. But this is a guy that turned tiny little bits of uh, client money into like $65 billion. And, you know, we're talking trillions, but put Bernie Madoff on and we're going to find money from places we had no idea there was money. <laughs> we're just going to break him out. Team. He's going to be like Sean Connery in The Rock. Like, you That's it. Because, yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to go last. And I just assumed you all would pick my choice. So I'm really pleased that you haven't. And I'm going with Joe Exotic, the Tiger King. <laughs> um, post his pardon. Post his pardon. <laughs> <laughs> Let me make the case. The guy ran a successful business for many years. Uh, he, unlike many of the people on the committee, he's actually run for office. He's run for both governor of Oklahoma and president of the United States. <laughs> Um, he, he represents diversity and that, you know, he, he represents gay America, uh, to Tom, Tom will like this. He is a libertarian, a staunch libertarian. So we get some <laughs> ideological diversity on there. I really think Joe exotic is a step up, totally unqualified, but a step up from others on that committee right now. Joe exotic, Bernie Madoff. <laughs> Dr. Oz and the cast of The View. I, that's it's a good. It would it would be interesting to see what sort of recommendations they would come up with. Uh, I would bet they would come up with as good of recommendations <laughs> in the actual committee. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's perfect. Well, realistically, here's the question that I have uh, with the discussions that we've had today, like trying to bring some sort of seriousness to this. Which I don't know why the fuck I'm doing that. Um, <laughs> How do we start to do this? Because we've talked about there are some because of the federalist system, there are some areas of the country that have done next to nothing in terms of pandemic response or other areas that have probably have gone overboard. Um, You have some experts saying that, yeah, we could do this in phases. Other experts that are saying we should pretty much shut down for the next year or something like that. How do we effectively come back from this? Is there any way to do that? I mean, I, I really have faith in this is where you bring the experts in who've studied this, who've looked at it. I mean, I, I think about like uh, Anthony Fauci, like they he spent his life thinking about this and there's no guarantees. Right. We could have uh, bad outcomes, but I would trust individuals who've who've looked at this, who've thought about this. And I think you're right, Nick. There are going to be different reactions based on where we are in the country. New York is probably a very different case from somewhere you know out west where you're in the middle of nowhere i feel like we can we can grapple with this and we can come up with the with the plan i feel like bill has just engaged in western america xenophobia so i'm going to speak on behalf of those people who are from no no Uh, a serious answer to your to your really great question is these consortia of governors that are trying to build regional approaches feels to me like both the great federalist answer and a great practical answer. So what's going to work for Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Ohio, 
Iowa and people from out in the middle of nowhere um, versus what's going to work for New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Those are going to be different. So I'm kind of digging the idea that these governors have figured out, A, the president can't tell us what to do, but B, we shouldn't act in ways that are completely unilateral relative to the states around us. So maybe that's going to turn out to be a good way to do it. I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. Better than Bernie Madoff in the cast of The View. <laughs> the View may have come up with this. Um, it, it's entirely possible. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that, those were um, those were good. Um, this, this was a really long episode. But this, this is what... It, Nick, everybody's home. Oh, I'm. I'm got, I love this. This is, this is what you want. Don't, yeah, you want a long, deep that. dive. <laughs> um, no, well, yeah, I, I thought it was really good. I'm, I'm really happy that the uh, the video thing worked. So, thank you for uh, to everybody that uh, that tuned in for that. We're gonna keep doing that as long as we're uh, in separate places, um, and probably after that, you know, in two weeks when everything is gonna be open completely, <clears throat> I'll be at the bar. You can meet me there. Um, uh, on top of that, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, where you can find all of the, uh, the live shows, um, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android, just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms, um, review us, share us, like us through there. We appreciate the support. Uh, and then our merch line you can find on teespring.com, uh, look for direct links on our social channels. Uh, you'll find all of the uh, all of the cool stuff that we have. I'm doing like five things at once, and I'm freaking out right now. Hey, Nick, um, does does Amazon treat your merchandise line as essential in, uh, uh, goods that have to be shipped immediately, yeah, or do they come in a month and a half? We're presenting more factual information than the corporate media at this point. So yes, we are essential. <laughs> nice, <laughs> um, Tom. Thank you as always for joining us. Uh, hope to see you soon. Absolutely um, a pleasure. Thank you. And we'll uh, we'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Shut up and sit down.